I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live. Of the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Did you have a crush on me? No. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. We were willing to put ourselves on the line. It was the killing that we objected to. World War II has been called the Good War, but not everyone at the time agreed. Rather than carry guns, a group of conscientious objectors volunteered for a groundbreaking government experiment. They signed up to starve. These men were deeply idealistic. I felt I was doing service. And the task is to fight evil, resist evil. Starving for science in World War II. Plus, how radio became a weapon of war. Both stories in Battles of Belief from American Radio Works. First, this news. This radio program comes to you thanks to millions of young men in uniform. Americans fighting overseas. World War II, 16 million Americans served in uniform. On the home front, millions more worked in American defense factories or volunteered to help the war effort. President Franklin Roosevelt mobilized the nation. Never in the memory of man has there been a war in which the courage the endurance and the loyalty of civilians played so vital a part. The battlefields of America are the production lines. The sweat and muscle and brains of men and women pounding out the tools of victory, slugging out more and more and more, twisting the axis into a trembling question mark. Men and women... If we don't stop that there guy Hitler, there won't be no white houses for you or me. Or any education for any of us. All you women between 20 and 50, the Army needs you. Speed the attack, join the way. From American Public Media, this is Battles of Belief in World War II, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Stephen Smith. Looking back at World War II, it's easy to believe that Americans all felt the same, that fascism was evil and had to be defeated. After all, we called it the Good War, and the people who fought it the greatest generation. But the story is more complicated than that. From its earliest days, World War II was a struggle for minds and hearts around the world and in the United States. Over the coming hour, we'll consider two little-known stories from World War II. The first about a select group of American men who refused to fight, but still risked their lives for the people of Europe by starving. The second, how a powerful device called radio became a modern weapon of war. Both stories reflect the battles of belief that were fought by the Allies and the Axis in World War II. Number Day in America's first peacetime compulsory military service program. October 1940. As the war spreads in Europe, the United States prepares for the day it may have to enter the fight. Lottery numbers for the peacetime draft are pulled from a fishbowl. Number 158 in Oakland, California. Laundry worker, Quang Quang Fu. Among the 800,000 men called up, a future U.S. president. At Palo Alto, John Kennedy, the ambassador's son, got the 18th number drawn. It was the first peacetime draft in the nation's history. It was also the first time the government made special provisions for people who refused to fight, conscientious objectors whose religious or philosophical beliefs forbade them to kill. In World War II, about 44,000 men were granted CO status. I would just rather be killed myself rather than kill someone else. 20-year-old Bob Willoughby was a CO from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Well, I was raised in the Church of the Brethren, which is a horse historic peace church, and I just knew I couldn't bring myself to aim a rifle or anything else at a person that with the intent to kill. The historic peace churches, the Brethren, Mennonites, and Quakers, follow the nonviolent teachings of Jesus to the letter. Same with Sam Legg, though he was an Episcopalian from New Jersey. I just could not visualize Jesus in the uniform of a U.S. soldier or any kind of a soldier. It just didn't follow. I said, well, if he couldn't do it, I could do it. No, I cannot participate in war. It's wrong. It creates more hardship than it solves more poverty, destruction, and surely sows the seeds of further conflict. My name is Max Campbellman, and I'm now a retired lawyer and a retired diplomat. I was a pacifist. 
in college, I registered as a conscientious objector rather than follow the course that many other pacifists took, which was refusing to register and going to jail. I felt citizens have a responsibility to their government. You serve where you can and where the government tells you to serve. In the First World War, there were basically two options for conscientious objectors, fight or go to jail. In World War II, the draft law allowed COs to opt for non-combat service in uniform. Many became medics. Or they could work for a new outfit called the Civilian Public Service. That's what Bob Willoughby, Sam Legg, and Max Campbellman chose. CPS men cleared forest trails, they worked on farms, and tended patients in mental hospitals. These men were deeply idealistic. Author Todd Tucker has written about COs in World War II. It's hard to understand now how deep your commitment to pacifism would have to be to take this stance during World War II, which was, you know, almost universally regarded as a just cause. For you to be one of these 12,000 men who would take this incredibly unpopular stance, I mean, you had to be almost painfully idealistic. We were willing to put ourselves on the line to protect other humans. It was the killing that we objected to. Jay Garner of Ohio was in the civilian public service. The son of Brethren missionaries, he'd grown up in India and been deeply influenced by the nonviolent teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. Garner had hoped to serve as a combat ambulance driver, but that option was blocked to men in the civilian public service. Soon after I was drafted, I was transferred to the Oregon coast where I was firefighting. And then from there, I transferred to the Augusta State Mental Hospital, taking care of a 20-bed dormitory of old men. When a brochure came out and said, would you starve that others might be better fed? So Jay Garner volunteered to starve. He was among some 200 conscientious objectors across the country who signed up for a year-long starvation experiment. The year was 1944, and the U.S. military wanted to know how best to feed the hungry people that would be liberated from Nazi-controlled Europe. Of the 200 volunteers, 36 men were chosen. Half a century later, we interviewed them about the experiment and why they volunteered. Here's Henry Schulberg of Minnesota. American boys were dying on the battlefield, suffering imprisonment, getting wounded. And I felt uh, it was unfair for me to, to be able to sleep in a comfortable bed at night and to always have three meals. I felt I should be prepared to sacrifice. Many of the men wanted to demonstrate physical bravery as well as the courage of their convictions. All around them, the picture shows and the radio waves were filled with patriotic messages. He was an American. He loved and fought for some patch of earth in his native land. He died in a distant field to keep war and the slave makers from them who are dear but to him. Because we know that there's only one way to win a war, and that's by fighting. Conscientious objectors didn't get a lot of public attention during the war, but they got a little coverage in newsreels and on radio. Some flattering, some not. These young men are Seventh-day Adventists who had served their country, but not by manipulating a weapon to kill. A medical corps has been established by students of the Washington Missionary College. It is patriotism, say these young men, who maintain they strive to obey the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Today we bring you the strange tale of Johnny Kessel, hat salesman and conscientious objector. Here's a radio drama produced in 1943 by the federal government featuring Hollywood star John Garfield in the role of a pacifist. What's wrong with brotherly love? That's what I want to know. And why not make an effort to understand people instead of murdering them? And that goes for your enemies, too. Even Hitler and the Japs? Even Hitler and the Japs. Oh, you, you jellyfish. So I'm a jellyfish. You slacker. So I'm a slacker. Oh, Johnny, are you a man or a worm? Tell me now, because, because... Oh, to think I've loved a word. Look, baby, don't drag our love into this. Of course, by the end of this program, Johnny Castle realizes the war is justified, and naturally, he signs up to fight. Millions of American soldiers were fighting in Europe and the Pacific in 1944 when the starvation experiment began. It was conducted in a physiology lab at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Todd Tucker is author of The Great Starvation Experiment. The experiment was a year long, and it started in November of 1944, so many people could see that the war was winding to a close, at least in Europe. The gigantic job of feeding Europe is already underway. 
None of us know yet how the plans will work or how long the burden will be borne. But already great convoys of food have moved into the city of Paris. Uh, we're bringing in flour, dried beans, uh, vitamized chocolate. The concentration camps of Europe were still largely unknown at this point, but starvation amongst refugees was clearly starting to come up as a concern. Food, warm and nourishing food for stomachs gnawed with hunger and ruined by a diet of grass roots and leaves and bread mixed with sawdust. For years, these people starved so that the Germans could eat better than any other nation in Europe. You too must be fed if you are to have their friendship and cooperation. Your military leaders want no starving people behind their battle lines, for a hungry man is a dangerous man. In the 1940s, there was scant scientific knowledge about hunger. The Minnesota experiment had two aims, to study the effect of starvation on the body and the mind, and to discover the best way to feed the survivors of famine. So in the fall of 1944, 36 conscientious objectors reported to the University of Minnesota Laboratory of Physiological Hygiene. The experiment began. The standardization phase was the first phase of the experiment. It was 12 weeks long, and the first goal was to just kind of determine normalized data for all the test subjects in their, you know, quote-unquote normal state. We were fed a normal American diet. That's what standardization. Everyone had the same diet. So the first three months were very, very fine. We ate in a dining room after the football team left, had very good food. We were enjoying the university life. They had us on 3,200 calories, and they tested us to see how we behaved under normal circumstances, so they'd be able to compare that when we'd be on half that ration. We spent a good deal of time being tested. The... Um, People who made the experiment were absolute geniuses at making up tests, physical tests, psychological tests. They examined our bodies minutely. They really probed. It's kind of mind-boggling the number of things that were analyzed. Again, author Todd Tucker. Everything from their hearing to their vision to their sperm count to uh, the quality of their skin and uh, just a battery of psychological tests as well. So that all began during the control phase. In addition, they had to start uh, maintaining the activity level that would be required of them for the whole experiment, which in addition to all the, the physical tests on treadmills, they had to walk uh, in and around campus 22 miles a week. And they were also all given jobs that were expected to take about 15 hours a week. The starvation experiment was headed by physiologist Ansel Keys. In 1944, his work, but not his name, was already known to millions of American soldiers. Keyes was the guy who developed the fighting man's banquet, the K-ration. The completely streamlined meal. Originally designed for paratroops, K proved ideal for tank busters, commandos, and all isolated units. Each package contains a balanced, vitamin-rich meal. A day's ration weighs about two pounds. By all accounts, Ansel Keyes was a skilled and meticulous scientist. The 36 conscientious objectors who volunteered for Ansel Keyes' experiment would come to know well how scientifically rigorous their new leader could be. Their ordeal also became something of a race against time. Would the war end before the painstaking study was complete? Hoping to solve intricate problems of war and peace, President Roosevelt reaches the Yalta meeting. February 1945, the newsreels tell about FDR's big meeting with British leader Winston Churchill and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin at Yalta to decide how to deal with post-war Germany if the Nazis lose. In Minnesota, the conscientious objectors begin the hard part of their experiment. Author Todd Tucker. The starvation phase was the second phase and the longest phase of the experiment. It was 24 weeks long. They ate twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, and that, that was about 1,570 calories a day per man. The scientists called it semi-starvation because the men did get food, but each test subject was supposed to lose 25% of his weight. If a man didn't lose weight fast enough, his meals were cut back. They were trying to, in some ways, mimic what uh, the situation of these starving European refugees. So the diet was heavy on cabbage and uh, wheat bread and rutabagas were a prominent item. There was occasional small amounts of meat and dairy, although I, most of the men I talked to would swear in later years that there was no meat at all in the starvation phase. We not only cleaned our plates, we licked them. Test subject Jay Garner says many of the volunteers became completely obsessed with food. Thought about food, uh, talked about it, uh, 
Some of them, people collected as many as 25 or 30 uh, cookbooks. There was the opportunity to read recipes, and I took the opportunity and was glad to do it. I know I, I had a recipe for leg of lamb and uh, mashed potatoes and peas and mint jelly. I remember that. <laughs> Sam Legg and the other men discovered that sex drive was an early casualty of the starvation phase. A number of the guys were dating local girls but lost interest as they lost weight. One fellow got bored watching love scenes at the movies but perked right up when there was food on the screen. Henry Scholberg was dating a young woman. I remember one time we were walking back from, from the movies. I suddenly said to her, now if we're suddenly attacked by a bunch of ruffians... It run like hell. He said, I have too weak to do anything to help you. <laughs> One time I was going to the library on the Minnesota campus, and they had large brass doors, and I found I could not pull the doors open. So I had to wait till the little cutie came along and pulled the doors open. A few years ago, public health researcher Leah Calm interviewed the surviving volunteers for an article on the starvation experiment. Calm says many of the men found the starvation phase more psychologically difficult than they'd expected. A lot of them talked about how, you know, they had been pretty gregarious and, and outgoing individuals and how that just was sort of gone. And that sort of goes to one of the overall messages or legacies of the experiment is this understanding that starvation directly impacts the mind and, and the emotions as well as just the body. We became more introverted, more concerned about our own problems. That's Bob Willoughby. We were no longer as concerned about the problems of the world. We weren't as concerned about helping others. Our, our thoughts were dominated by food. One of the conscientious objectors, a New Yorker, stood out from his colleagues in the experiment. This guy stayed interested in world events and used his mind to avoid thinking about food. He focused on textbooks, not cookbooks. Author Todd Tucker. Max Campbellman uh, was kind of an extraordinary overachiever all his life. Campbellman distinguished himself by completing law school <laughs> during the starvation experiment. And then when I finished the law school, I decided I'd better continue and I took courses toward a master's in political science. And I have no doubt in my mind that helped me get over the stresses of the starvation. Max Campelman was the sole Jewish member of the, of the test subject cadre. His pacifism was definitely religious, but he was also a political radical in many ways, which being a Jewish pacifist in World War II is a very uh, ideologically lonely position to be in. I felt I was doing service, and the task is to fight evil, resist evil. While I was in college, I was exposed to Quakers. I spent a summer in Quaker work camp. I had good friends who were Quakers. And to this day, I believe that the power of love is an immense power. And obviously, it would be so much better if we could defeat evil with the power of love. And those were my thoughts at that time. Throughout the world, throngs of people hail the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland. Years full of suffering and death and sacrifice. Now the war against Germany is won. May 8, 1945, was VE Day, victory in Europe. But the brutal fighting against Japan continued. In Minnesota, Max Campelman and the 35 other conscientious objectors were halfway through the starvation phase of their experiment. At the lab, they took dexterity and concentration tests. They ran on a treadmill, sometimes to the point of collapse. The men also walked their weekly 22 miles around campus and along the Mississippi River. And, as Jay Garner remembers, the hungry volunteers found what comforts they could. We uh, could have up to nine cups of tea or coffee a day. And what we enjoyed doing was to see other people eat. And we would go into a restaurant and order just a cup of coffee and sit and watch other people eat. 
and it bothered us to see people come in and only maybe eat half of their food and the other just leave it. The temptation to eat, well, you could, you could sort of get around it. They allowed us to drink coffee, and at first they allowed us to chew gum. The most I ever chewed in one day, I believe, was 18 packs, and uh, mouth got raw on the inside. One of the fellows, as I remember the number, he had somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 packs a day. May have explained one of the reasons why he had problems losing weight. Ansel Keys and the other scientists running the experiment realized that each stick of gum had a few calories of sugar, which would add up if a desperate man chewed a couple hundred sticks. So gum was rationed, two packs a day. Then it turned out some volunteers actually cheated. Here's Sam Legg. One man completely lost control of himself, and he went into a a grocery shop, I think. He didn't buy anything. He shoplifted. And what did he take? He took potatoes and carrots and onions and um, root vegetables, which were the basis of our diet, and he stuffed himself with all this. And he, of course, was removed from the experiment. In all, four men were either dropped from the experiment or the final results because they cheated or failed to lose weight as expected. On July 28, 1945, the starvation phase of the experiment ended. Two days later, Life magazine published a photo spread on the Minnesota experiment. With their shirts off, the men's rib cages pressed through their skin like washboards. Their bony shoulders and elbows jutted out at alarming angles. The men had been longing for the end of the starvation phase. Next came the three-month rehabilitation phase, but the suffering continued. What was unexpected about the rehab phase was that it ended up being psychologically the hardest phase for, for most of the men. And that was because for the starvation phase, they you know counted the minutes until it would be over. And then it was, it was an incredibly arduous time, the 24 weeks of the starvation phase. And then when these men entered the rehab phase, many of them assumed that kind of just overnight everything would get better. And what they found out was that they were actually put on a very limited increase in calories. And so for many of these men, it, it was an ex- excruciatingly disappointing time. It was the time when Sam Legg was so hungry, he mutilated himself. He and fellow CO Marshall Sutton were visiting friends for dinner at a home in Minneapolis. As always, the test subjects brought their own bag of pre-measured food from the lab. Even though it was late summer, they enjoyed a glowing fireplace. It was always so hard for the skinny men to stay warm. The fire was getting low, and Sam jumped up, and he knew where the, the wood pile was, and there was a hatchet out there, and, and he needed to, uh, in order to get the fire started, split up a little wood there. Sam Legg weighed about 113 pounds. He could hardly hold the axe in the air, but he brought it down on his left hand, chopping away three middle fingers. I admit to being pretty crazy mixed up at the time. I still... 50 years later, um, I'm not ready to say I did it on purpose. Um, I'm not ready to say I didn't. It was the third week of rehabilitation. It seemed like the hunger would never end. The experiment staff psychologist noted that Legg's mental state was in a sharp decline. Sam Legg was rushed to the hospital to get his mangled hand stitched up. And a high school girl was in there seeing his hand all bandaged, and, and I was a skeleton, so everybody knew uh, what I was doing there. And the, the girl saw this and said, oh dear, how awful. Uh, what, what happened? And I said, well, I just got hungry. Uh, and the poor kid, <laughs> she, she says, but, 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 but you didn't have to do it that way. She thought I'd eaten them. I was hungry. (laughs) Um, I didn't, actually. They're now buried in a backyard in Minneapolis. The scientists called it a severe degree of semi-starvation neurosis. The experiment's final report said Legg was desperate to end the ordeal, but despondent about the prospect of failing. With his sewn-up hand, Sam Legg went back to the lab and finished the experiment. He says the other guys didn't ask him much about the accident. No, I don't think there wasn't any conversation about it. They just accepted. 
I think they were all as crazy as I was. Japan has surrendered unconditionally. President Truman announced that a note from the Japanese government has been received by the Allies and agrees to unconditional surrender terms as outlined in the Potsdam Declaration. Japan's surrender ended World War II. It was early September of 1945. Jay Garner remembers hardly noticing. Yeah, we were uh, eating when the announcement came that peace had been signed and uh, that the war was over and this went through the group and we kept on eating. The food was the important thing. We uh, didn't care about whether the war was over or not as long as we got our food. Jay Garner started the experiment weighing 165 pounds. At the end, he weighed 119. And in the next 10 days, I gained 20 pounds. And ultimately, I went up to 192. And it was because we kept eating. We would eat and eat until our stomachs hurt. And, uh, but still, we did not feel full. When the men finally got to eat whatever they wanted, Harold Blickenstaff and some of the others binged so heavily they got sick. They warned us, you better not eat apples because your body has stopped producing the juices necessary to digest apples. But one guy went and ate a whole apple pie, and they had to take him into the hospital to pump his stomach, and they said it could have killed him. And this kind of thing did happen when guys got out of concentration camps and so forth, is that you have a hunger that's insatiable. Some of the men say it took a year or more to recover their strength and to get back to a normal weight. Half a century later, none of the test subjects believes that starving for more than six months did any major long-term damage to their minds or bodies. Over the years, many of the conscientious objectors stayed active in some kind of public service or church work. Most of them left Minnesota, becoming teachers and biologists and businessmen. When researcher Leah Calm interviewed 18 of the surviving volunteers, to a man they said the starvation experiment had been a defining moment in their lives. All of them really had this lovely combination of pride and humbleness in the way they spoke about their participation in the experiment. And they stood by their convictions, and that was an accomplishment. But they really all stressed that, you know, they didn't have it as hard as some people did or as the people who were really starving or as the people who, you know, were out in the field being shot at. I don't think any of us felt like heroes. That's Henry Schulberg. After the war, he worked on relief ships transporting cattle from the U.S. to hungry people in Poland. Then he settled down to raise a family and to run a university library. Scholberg says volunteering to starve in World War II was the most honorable thing he's done in life. I don't think I'll ever do anything to compare with it unless I run into a burning building and save 10 people or something or a little baby. That would, that would top it, but... Until that happens, uh, that'll be the noblest thing I ever did. Because the test subjects were conscientious objectors and not soldiers, the U.S. government never paid them, and they didn't qualify for veterans' benefits. The Mutual Network has canceled the program, usually heard at this time, to bring you a special broadcast in reference to the world food crisis. We are speaking to you from the Oval Room of the White House in Washington, D.C. At the end of World War II, millions of people around the world lived on the edge of starvation. In 1946, President Harry Truman asked Americans who'd already lived through years of rationing and shortages to sacrifice a while longer so food could be shipped to famine-stricken countries. Millions will surely die unless we eat less. Again, I strongly urge all Americans to save bread and to conserve oils and fats. These are the most essential weapons at our disposal to fight famine abroad. But the battle against post-war hunger would largely be fought without the findings of the Minnesota starvation experiment. The main study would not be published until 1950, five years after the war ended. 
Todd Tucker, author of The Great Starvation Experiment, says many of the scientists working on the project were bitterly disappointed about the timing. The war ended sooner than they thought it would, and uh, the starvation crisis was uh, over sooner than they thought it would be, and it took longer than they thought to publish the experiment. So they published some interim studies in the meantime to put out some of their early results, but most of the lasting value of the study came out later. The study became a research classic because of the deep level of scientific detail in the heavy two-volume report. Research today on subjects like eating disorders still cite the Ansel Keys study. That's partly because after the world learned of the horrific experiments that Nazi doctors had conducted on prisoners, the ethics of human experimentation went through a revolution. Keys did this study because nothing like it had been done before, and because of ethical restrictions after World War II, nothing like it has been done after and probably never will be done. So for scientific data about starvation, there's really only one place to go, and that's the, the biology of human starvation by Ansel Keys. Ansel Keys would go on making important discoveries in human nutrition. Two of the biggest, Keys revealed the connection between saturated fat and heart disease. And he and his wife Margaret popularized the now famous Mediterranean diet, low in fat, high in vegetables, olive oil, fish, and red wine. Ansel Keys died in 2004 at the age of 100. Here's a postscript. Perhaps none of the 36 men was changed more by the year-long starvation experiment than Max Campbellman. If I were drafted, I would not be a conscientious objector today. I no longer think that it, it will deal with evil. Campbellman started the experiment believing in the power of love to overcome evil. That changed on August 6, 1945. The U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. What the atom bomb illustrated was that the perpetrator never sees the victim. So the victim can have all kinds of love, but will have absolutely no impact. There is such a thing as evil in the world. The power of love is inadequate to defeat it. Max Campbellman eventually joined the Marine Corps Reserves and had a long, distinguished career in public service. He was a diplomat in the Carter and Reagan administrations and served as the nation's top arms control negotiator with the Soviet Union. More than half a century later, Campbellman can't really explain why the Nazi persecution of fellow Jews did not shake his faith in pacifism during the war. But asked why he was willing to suffer a half year of starvation, Campbellman says that answer is easy. Why do people who were drafted go to fight wars without escaping? Because there's a duty. Uh, it's the same kind of a thing. It's just a different battlefield. And from our point of view at the time, it was a battlefield consistent with what we considered our conscience to tell us. But it was a battlefield. And battlefields are not supposed to be easy. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Battles of Belief. Coming up, the radio war. The key to black propaganda is to do as much truth as possible and just bend it a little at the end. Just put a little hook on it. Our website has essays, photos, and films about the Minnesota starvation experiment. Visit us at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Battles of Belief. I'm Stephen Smith. During World War II, military scientists drew up a thick catalog of new war machines, the jet fighter, the missile, the attack helicopter, the nuclear bomb. World War II also marked the first widespread use of electronics in battle. For the first time, two-way radios directed tank and troop movements, Radar and sonar swept the skies and sea. And there was one simple, innocent-looking device capable of infiltrating enemy barracks, homes, and naval ships. Radio. This is war. Tonight, the four great networks again joined to present the tenth of their series of broadcasts. This is the Italo Bible group speaking to you. 
As we are being intercepted and jammed, we ask you to follow us by moving the dial until you find us again. Broadcast the biggest sensation that we have yet sent You hast nun blickt, der brennt mir auf der Haut. Du hast mir mitten in die Seele geschaut. World War II marked the first time radio became a widely used psychological weapon. Both the Allied and Axis powers transformed the wireless into an anti-personnel device. They shot disinformation and psychological shrapnel at each other. Hello, boys. American boys. I've got your favorite jazz recordings. Remember this, Glenn Miller? You'd be so nice to come home to. More than a hundred propaganda stations took the air. Axis Sally was one of the famous voices. She was an American who collaborated with the Nazis in Berlin. Sally broadcast what was called white propaganda, meaning she never concealed her Nazi affiliations. At the same time, there were radio stations that specialized in black propaganda. That was a shadowy world of top-secret transmitters and elaborate deceptions. America's adventures into clandestine radio propaganda were directed by the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, forerunner to the CIA. The OSS built more than a dozen stations, which pretended to broadcast from dissident groups on the enemy's home soil. My name's Elizabeth McIntosh, and I did a morale operations work, which is black propaganda. We were trying to develop a, uh, a feeling with the enemy that the war was going to be lost, there was no use fighting, and then we do a lot of special things like telling the soldiers that their wives were unfaithful and just that sort of demoralizing work. The OSS recruited journalists and radio experts for the job of fabricating lies. Betty McIntosh was a newspaper reporter who'd covered Pearl Harbor. There was Gordon Auchincloss, a New York variety show producer. Cy Nadler, a radio script writer. John Creedy, a newspaper man in North Carolina all signed on with the OSS. The key to black propaganda is to do as much truth as possible and just bend it a little at the end, just put a little hook on it. You're directing your message toward people who are a little bit receptive, just a little bit. If they're not receptive at all, they're not going to pay any attention to it. It would sound so much like a, a German station because uh, the program was mostly German and that would be the cover. And uh, in between, they would have what they call the dirt. So you had cover and uh, dirt, and then cover and dirt. It was like sort of spreading landmines, of these lies and, and, and the verbiage of truth. We are throwing away Germany's future, whatever future we have left, if we have to sacrifice our children for the sake of Hitler. There is only one solution. Out with Hitler. Out with the Nazi regime. Well, they were rumors, they were stories that made Nazi party people sound irresponsible compared to the German army people. They had better food, they didn't risk themselves at the front. That kind of divisiveness was basic to the program. In late 1944, the German Reich lurched towards collapse. At the same time, a mysterious new radio station called out to Germany's Rhineland. Listeners knew it as Zwölf Hundert Zwölf, Radio 1212. 12-12 was an American creation, codenamed Radio Annie. The station's theme song was a heart-stirring traditional Rhinish tune. Compared to the heavy murk of official Nazi propaganda, this voice sounded fresh and honest. It included news on what was happening on the Western Front, providing very realistic and accurate news, which was something that the German stations themselves were not providing. Professor Lawrence Soli of Marquette University wrote two books about black radio. He says 1212 was successful, in part, because its air raid reports were so grimly accurate. Areas were being bombed by the Allies, 
there would be photo reconnaissance and OSS would attempt to determine what blocks had been knocked out or what houses had been knocked out and then broadcast over their black radio stations uh, about this destruction. And this made the station sound quite authentic. Throughout our broadcast, we bring you the names of the towns and villages evacuated in the last 24 hours. We tell you where the fighting is and which towns are under immediate threat. At the top and bottom of every hour, we have an overview of the military situation. 1212 announcers were either fluent German-speaking Americans or Germans who collaborated with the Allies. Broadcasts came from a powerful transmitter in Luxembourg. Attention, attention. 1212 has a special report. There has been a grave terrorist attack. A battalion of about 500 trench diggers were caught out in the open by enemy dive bombers. The planes opened fire before the workers... Report of the 12th Army Group classified information. There were Germans who thought Radio 1212 came from bunkers, because at times it was technically imperfect. Many Wehrmacht officers and soldiers followed the station night after night, keeping score by its front news. Annie was building up her audience. Initially, the broadcasts avoided anti-Nazi rhetoric. 1212 was simply pro-German. Operation Annie's team worked from trailers on the grounds of a well-guarded mansion in Luxembourg. Patricia Swain was stationed there. Annie used to pretend to be a free uh, German station inside Germany. It was all a lot of nonsense, but it worked. Swain recalls that to keep its cover intact, 1212 claimed to originate from different locations each night. They said, we have to pack up now, we have to go because the Allies are nearly here. And then there'll be a lot of banging and shifting of, <laughs> of radio equipment and everything. And then we'll open up tomorrow night, we'll be back with you tomorrow night from another location. You believe it, because people are pretty gullible on the whole. And they'd been lied to for so many years, they were used to believing what they heard. In early 1945, as the Allies pressed deeper into Germany, General Dwight Eisenhower ordered the station to begin faking news. It was time for Operation Annie to cash in on her credibility. Lawrence Soley. Eisenhower wanted the station to make the Germans think that the Allies were moving more quickly than they actually were, uh, making them retreat and take action like that, thereby undermining support for Hitler. Eisenhower's scheme apparently worked. Panicked Germans clogged the roads. Civilians actually moved into the streets when they were told that there was going to be large-scale bombing of their areas. And in so doing, they were able to slow down the retreat of the German army. Radio Annie broadcast for 127 nights. It finally signed off by pretending that Allied troops had caught up with the rebel broadcasters. Listeners suddenly heard shouting in English, sounds of a scuffle. The German announcer cried out for someone to play a record. Then Annie's theme song rolled and abruptly fell silent. Near the end of World War II, the OSS prepared to cast its electronic net at the Japanese. But the Japanese islands were too far from Allied-controlled territory. A conventional radio signal couldn't reach. So in the meantime, OSS propaganda teams targeted Japanese troops and their collaborators in occupied China. But only rich or official people owned radios there. For one operation, scriptwriter Gordon Auchincloss cast his Chinese actors as Yangtze riverboat captains, chattering on their ship-to-shore sets. And uh, we're really corny. <laughs> we used to start uh, the riverboat business with a sound uh, that simulated the sound of the of the whistles on the riverboats, which was achieved by blowing on canteens that were partially filled with water. It was sort of a boo sound, and two different tones, ooh, and then woo. <laughs> the station was set up in an American-occupied villa near Kunming in southern China. Programs were pre-recorded and beamed from a mobile transmitter to elude Japanese bombers. Another deception created by the same outfit had a cover story about as far-fetched as the river captains. Cy Nadler wrote the scripts. Gordon Auchincloss and Betty McIntosh contributed ideas. The code name was Hermit. The speaker purported to be somebody known as the Hermit, who based various predictions 
on a combination of uh, well, the Chinese calendar, or the Japanese calendar, the zodiac, and the placement of so you name it. Operation Hermit was uh, beamed towards Nanking and on a daily basis. The Hermit, I should explain, would predict things that had already happened and then tap himself on the back. It was the Walter Winchell technique. Seymour Nadler was stalking up and down, screaming, we gotta do something to get to Japan. And I said, well, why don't you just tell them we're gonna have a big earthquake or something? Nah, that won't do. For some reason, <laughs> we predicted that uh, on a certain day in August, uh, Japan was going to suffer a catastrophic event and so on. Without saying what it was, of course, it turned out to be the day the atom bomb was dropped. We knew nothing about it. The Japanese surrendered nine days after Hiroshima. Allied broadcasters boasted that they were the best at covert radio. But the Nazis actually pioneered the tactic. Germany used radio to create the illusion of an underground fascist movement spreading across Europe, a so-called fifth column. Much of the rhetoric was anti-Jewish. British intelligence agents took notice and started up their own clandestine stations. Later, the Americans copied the British. Former OSS agent John Creedy. The basic thing that uh, motivated everybody was the uh, fifth column activities of the Nazis early in the war, that they were credited with the uh, collapse of the uh, French uh, resistance early on. And everybody said, well, we better have something like that ourselves. Some of the clandestine Nazi broadcasts were well acted and believable. The bogus new British broadcasting station was probably the most credible. This is the new British broadcasting station. Have you ever given any thought to the fate of your children? Do you realize that the government's evacuation plan, or should one say their complete collapse, may have a profound effect upon your boys and girls in years to come? Historian Martin Doherty says other Nazi stations were almost comically bad. Terrible Cockney accents, inappropriate language, dull tirades. One of the problems for the Germans was that they could not really find any half-decent broadcasters to work for them. They were forced to rely on uh, renegades, prisoners of war, former school teachers who happened to be living in Germany at the time, uh, who were more or less coerced into working for them. Uh, so they had great problems in finding anyone who could put a credible story together for them. This is station debunked, T-E-B-U-N-K, the friend of the people of the United States. The Third Reich apparently cooked up just one black propaganda station aimed at America's home front. Radio Debunk, as it called itself, broadcast from Berlin over short wave. It claimed to come from Iowa. Hello, girls and boys. Hello, everybody. This is station Debunk, T-E-B-U-N-K, the station that debunks war propaganda, war criminals, and the armament racket. You usually find clandestine radio stations broadcasting in situations where you have a repressive regime that prohibits dissent. Author Lawrence Soley says the Nazi broadcasts provoked scant interest. That, I think, is one of the reasons why the German stations weren't particularly effective. The stations that were broadcasting from Germany to Great Britain or from Germany to the United States, that they were broadcasting to free countries. Opponents could speak out against the war, both in Great Britain and in the United States. The effectiveness of allied stations that targeted Axis countries is also open to doubt. The OSS claimed that some Nazi troops did surrender and that German morale was weakened as a result of allied broadcasts. But there's no independent evidence, no Nielsen ratings for disinformation. When former OSS scriptwriter Abraham Polanski looks back on the effort, he sneers. If you add up all that the wartime radio intelligence did and compare it to the effect of one armed soldier going into battle, cancel out. After the war, Polanski worked in Hollywood. Clandestine broadcaster Cy Nadler went on to a career in counterintelligence. Gordon Auchincloss produced radio and television shows. Nadler and Auchincloss reflect on the work they did decades ago with some fondness and pride. Right. Well, we always said if we shortened the war by 30 seconds, why we'd, we'd have paid for ourselves. Uh, we didn't have very high budgets. Uh, God knows, yes. 
sometimes if you reach just one important person, and important in the sense of, uh, of having the authority and the ability to make decisions, and if you can affect that decision, well, what's the difference if you haven't reached uh, five, ten thousand others? A few black propagandists worried about the morality of what they were doing, especially the journalists. Was it right for the government to do so much lying? Betty McIntosh went into World War II a reporter. She came out to a career in the CIA. I cringe at some of the things that I've written for M.O. that were just beautiful. They were so untrue. (laughs) Clandestine radio stations closed down after World War II, but soon fired up again in other countries with other voices. The CIA made extensive use of black radio propaganda during the Cold War. So did the Soviet KGB. U.S. government reports show that covert radio stations are still being used around the world. As one study put it, wherever authoritarian regimes, political conflict, or civil wars exist, there is black radio. Take a tip, button up your lip, don't get yourself unstrung. Or make a, just from a slip of the tongue. Don't talk about the weather. It's a military secret. Just keep your wits together. That's the safest way to keep it. Battles of Belief was produced by me, Stephen Smith, with help from Barish Gumish-Dawes, Professor Lawrence Soley at Marquette University, and Elizabeth Winter. The program was edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. Mixing help from Craig Thorson. The ARW team includes Sasha Eslanian, Laurie Stern, Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalin, Catherine Lewis, and Courtney Stein. At American Public Media, John Ryan and Twyla Olson. Our program on the radio war was first broadcast in 1995. There's great material on World War II at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can hear propaganda broadcasts from the era, see photos and films about the starvation experiment, and a lot more. You can also sign up for our podcast and newsletter. That's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Well, can I take you dancing? If you take my heart and keep it, I'm not saying a word. I'm careful whatever I do. I guess everyone's heard. I want to give all my love to you. If you got to talk to someone, don't give any information. It's smart to be a dumb one. Simply change the conversation. Let's talk about love. That's what I'm thinking of. It's no secret, no secret. It's no secret that I love you. American Public Media.